0: Our text this morning is going to be in John's Gospel, chapter 12, starting with verse 20. Um, I'm going to ask you, I'm, I'm going to be, the, I'm going to be the, the tough guy now, if you have a Bible, turn to John, chapter 12, verse 20. If you don't have one, there's one in the back of the pew, or if you're the kind of person who uses an electronics device, tap the appropriate locations on your screen to get to John, chapter 12, verse 20. Um, while you're turning there... There are a couple of things I want to get out of the way first, by way of context and, and preparation. Um, first, how many—be honest—how many of you have never read an entire book out of the Bible, one whole book start to finish? Raise right your hand. It's okay. All right. Okay. So, I want to challenge you: read the book of John, the Gospel of John. Of the four Gospels, it is my absolute favorite because um, John presents a picture of Jesus that is so personal, so intimate, so close. uh, Because John, we know, is called the disciple that Jesus loved. It's obvious in John's Gospel that he loved Jesus back. Okay, Um, John shows the most clear picture of Jesus' deity of his majesty, of his power, and his humility. So that's my challenge for you. I'm giving you homework before we even get started. Read the Gospel of John. Second thing, uh, the passage today is in the middle of John's account of the Passion Week. Y'all know what Passion Week is? Anybody not know what Passion Week is? Anybody? Passion Week is that week where Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and then was crucified, that's the week of his passion, all right? Um, This this passage is actually right before they enter the upper room and celebrate the Lord's Supper and the Passover feast and, and all of the teaching that Jesus does. John is the only one of the Gospel writers who focuses on the upper room discourse. And when you're reading the book of John, from chapter 13 to chapter 17... Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do an old Air Force instructor trick. Okay? That's the important stuff. It's not that there's unimportant stuff in there, but from 13 to 17, you need to pay attention to that. Okay? That's podium kicking. He is recapping all of his teaching to the disciples and preparing them for his departure. He's getting them ready for him to not be with them anymore. Well, why is that a big deal? What do the disciples have to do after Jesus is no longer with them? What's their mission? To go out and to share the gospel and to make disciples. The end of, end of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28 verse 18. Right? Go therefore and do what? Make disciples. By the way, okay, I make my guys at Olivet do this all the time. I want y'all to take your left hand, stick it out in front of you. Now I want you to take your right hand put these two fingers up, just like a Boy Scout, put these two fingers up, okay? Now I want you to take those two fingers and put them right here on the inside of your wrist. Make sure you got a pulse. If you have one, this message applies to you, okay? By the way, I am very interactive, so I'm going to be asking you questions, and I don't mind appropriate feedback. The inappropriate feedback can wait till we're done. You can meet me at the door. That's fine. All right? So they're supposed to go out and share the gospel. They're supposed to go out and be his witnesses. They're supposed to go out and make disciples. He is getting them ready for the point where he is, as I said this last week to my group, he is giving them their capstone project. In college courses, for your, your first free and, and most of the fourth year, You go through all the learning process. But the very last project that you have to do is called a capstone. And that's where the professors take on more of an advisory role. They kind of sit back and say, okay, here's your project. Make it happen. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm not going to hold your hand in the process. You've been given all the information. Make it happen. This is what the disciples are about to go into is their capstone project. Oh, and by the way, it's still going on. We're participants it. Okay? So, now that we've gotten to where we're at in the Scripture, just before the upper room, just before they go upstairs, the Pharisees have been grumbling since Jesus came into Jerusalem. Right? Remember their reaction to the, the triumphal entry? Teacher, tell your disciples to shut up. Tell them to quit shouting these things. The Romans are going to come down. They're going to come after us. And Jesus said, look, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks are going to start yelling. Which is going to get more attention? The Romans are going to pay attention if the rocks start shouting out. Okay? So, they're complaining. And, and just before the passage that we have for this morning, in verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that they are, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They're complaining that Jesus isn't just popular with the Jews, He's popular with the rest of the world, too. His teaching is attracting people, and that bugs the Pharisees. I don't know why it bugs the Pharisees, because they don't really care about the rest of the people. They care about themselves. So this is this is the setting that we're going into with our passage for today. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something that is weird for you guys, probably, because I don't remember Danny asking people to do this but this is something I do every Sunday It's part of that Air Force training. Uh, as, as an Air Force retiree, as somebody who still works for the Department of Defense, if a person of higher rank or higher importance comes into the office, what do you do? You stand up. Well, we're fixing to read God's Word, right? Is there anybody in here more important than God's Word? No. So if you are physically able, please stand with me as I read our passage for today. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word this morning, and that's what this is, this is a period of worship through study. Father, I ask that your spirit would reach in to those hard spots in our hearts. And we all have them. Father, soften those spots and let your word take root. That we can bear the fruit that Jesus requires of us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Please have a seat. So, Passion Week, the other, well, the other, the big thing that's going on in Jerusalem is the Feast of the Passover. All the Jews come to Jerusalem. It's kind of a pilgrimage feast. It's kind of a big deal, right? Uh, by Jesus' time, the Passover has changed. If you go back and read the description of the Passover in Exodus, it is nothing like the Passover they were celebrating in the first century. The Passover in Exodus, they were supposed to be dressed for travel. They were supposed to eat in haste, kind of standing up at the door holding their plate in their hand, like at a potluck or a picnic, Right? By the time they celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, they're lounging at a table, they're eating, they're feasting, they're remembering, they're celebrating. The The Passover that was established in Exodus was not a celebration. It was a memorial. So it has changed. Um, the, the lambs were slaughtered by the priests instead of being slaughtered by the head of the household. There were a lot of differences in the feast. One of the big differences when the celebration happened in Jerusalem was that Gentiles would come. John tells us that at the celebration there were some Greeks. Now this is not Greek-speaking Jews like we read about in the book of Acts. Because in that case it would have been the word Hellenists. This is Gentiles. This is non-Hebrew Greeks. Probably God-fearers like Cornelius and his family. The God-fearers participated in synagogue worship. They went to the synagogue, they listened to the rabbis, they, they listened to the Jewish teaching, they went to the temple to pray, but they didn't go through the process of converting to Judaism. For most of the men, I can understand why. That required some surgery that I don't think I would elect in the first century. Okay, um, So these are the people that that John is talking about. They worshipped God, but they were not Jews. And so they were confined to the outer courtyard of the temple. Now it's funny, John doesn't include this in his gospel, but the first place that Jesus goes, if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first place Jesus goes after he gets into Jerusalem is the temple. And once he gets in the temple courtyard, what does he do? He starts flipping tables and chasing out the money changers. Can anybody tell me why, except for my group over here, because they already know this answer. Can anybody tell me why Jesus did that? Okay. They were keeping people from being able to worship God. They were selling stuff, but they were selling it at exorbitant prices. They were selling bad product. They were taking advantage of people. Okay, that would, that would be like putting a cover charge on the church. Alright? Y'all realize that the offering plate's not a cover charge. You don't pay because you want to come in and listen. That's not how this works. But that's what was going on. People who wanted to come and worship had to pay an extra fee, so Jesus was upset. That's what he meant when he said, you've turned my father's house into a house of thieves. It's supposed to be a place of worship. So it's well Jesus in this courtyard that these Greeks go to Philip. Now, I don't know why they picked Philip. Maybe they were from Galilee, just like Philip was. Um, Philip's name is Greek. It is not a Jewish name. It's a Greek name. They go to Philip and they said, we want to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Andrew. Anybody know who Andrew's brother was? Peter. Peter. By the way, anytime you see Andrew in the Gospels, you know what Andrew does? He brings people to Jesus. The feeding of the 5,000, who was it that brought the little boy to Jesus? It was Andrew. Andrew's always bringing people to Jesus. Well, this time Philip goes to Andrew, Andrew and Philip go to Jesus. They were probably concerned about these Gentiles and how Jesus would react because now he's in Jerusalem, he's in the temple, he doesn't want to become unclean before the feast of the Passover, so they're probably trying to protect him, right? And previously in his ministry, he's made it very, very, very clear that he came first to the Jews. It doesn't mean he's excluding the Gentiles, but he came first to the Jews. So they come to Jesus and they say, uh, we got a group of Gentiles over here who'd really like to talk to you. And Jesus answered them. Now take a, take a close look at his answer in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's a non-answer if I've ever heard one. Jesus, we've got this group of Gentiles over here that want to come meet you. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay? That, that's good. What does that mean? How does that apply? What do we do with, what do we do with that? How do we take that back to these Gentiles? Now I don't know about you, but I'm a very visual kind of person. Somebody Somebody says something to me and I visualize what they're talking about. I build a picture in my head. And when I hear Jesus talking about being glorified, I get a picture. I get a picture of the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is whiter than white can be. And He's glowing and it's, it's blinding. I get a, a an idea of um, Moses when he's on the mountain with God and he says, show me your glory. And God says, no. Because if I do that, you die. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to cut a hole in the rock, I'm going to stick you in the hole in the rock, and I'm going to pass my glory past you. And at the very end, you get to look at the trailing edge of the hem of my glory. A thread. You'll live through that. That's how great this glory is. I I think about Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he's he experiences a vision, and he's standing there and he's describing the throne room, and I see God seated on his throne and the train of his robe fills the temple. Fills the temple. That's a, that's a big robe, folks. And it fills the temple with his glory. The train of his robe fills the temple with his glory. Right? And when Isaiah realizes this, what's his response? <laughs> I am toast. <laughs> When you stand before that glory, you suddenly realize how not glorious you are. And so Jesus says, the time has come for me to be glorified. In other words, the time has come for me to no longer be hidden from anybody. The Greeks want to see Jesus. Jesus says the time's coming where everybody is going to be able to see me. Now I want you to think about that for just a second. I want you to grab onto this. This is, this is my first point. This is, this, you know, three points in a poem. I don't do poetry. So, this is my first point. Alright? When Jesus shows up, He cannot be hidden. Now, there are people out there who, who will tell you that they're neutral towards the things of God. Okay? They're lying. You cannot be neutral towards God you either accept or you reject. There is no fence sitting. Okay. When Jesus appears on the scene, He cannot be hidden anymore. And I'm not just talking about His physical presence. I'm not just talking about His post-resurrection appearances. Because He couldn't be hidden. I mean, come on, the disciples locked themselves in the upper room, barricaded the door, and then all of a sudden Jesus is standing there at the table. Right, None of the disciples had a weak heart because they probably wouldn't have made it out of there because all of a sudden Jesus is here. I'm not talking about His physical appearance. I'm talking about His presence in the life of a person who's claimed the name of Christ, a person who's saved. If Jesus in your life means that you're changed, then He can't be hidden. He's going to come out. That light's going to show. Or at least it should. Later on, in John chapter 15, he tells the disciples that the world's going to hate them. He says the world is going to hate you. Remember, they hated me first. They're going to persecute you. They're going to put you out of the synagogues. In fact, they're going to kill you and think they're doing a favor for God. Why? Because the disciples claim the name of Christ. And because they live the life that Jesus told them to live. Their life looked different after walking with Jesus. After being with Jesus, their life was different. Our life should be different. One of the ways that should be different is the way we love people. And I know, I'm sure, most of you have been in church longer than I've been alive. I don't get to say that around many people. I know you have heard that there are different words for love in the Greek. Okay, The love that is used there is that active, sacrificial... Uh, Selfless, unconditional kind of love, the kind of love that causes you to seek the best for somebody, regardless of what it's gonna cost you. Not the emotional kind of love, not the, not the like kind of love, right? I I use this example all the time. I love my wife. There are times I don't like my wife. Y'all can gasp, we've been together for almost 30 years, she knows that's a fact. I can tell you there are more times than not that she doesn't like me cuz I'm not a likable person all the time. But we're commanded to love people unconditionally whether we like them or not. And that's not just the people that we have relationships with, those are strangers. This kind of love is the kind of love that 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 makes that should make us take a stranger into our home for a holiday meal or just because the weather is terrible and they're living out on the street. Or it'll make us go through the, the process of, of becoming an adoptive or a foster parent. It's the kind of love that makes a person become a nurse or a home health care worker. And I'm picking these things that are particularly difficult for me to wrap my head around because I'm not wired that way. School teachers, especially elementary school teachers, they all got a special gift. Or a disability, one of the two. Okay? This is the love that Paul tells husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, the hardest verse for husbands to hear. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do for the church? He died for her. It doesn't say husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church as long as she cooks you breakfast. As long as she keeps your laundry clean. As long as she does the housework as long as she contributes to paying the bill. It doesn't say that. It says, love your wives, period. That's the kind of love that Jesus says we're supposed to have for other people. That kind of love is a direct reflection of Christ's glory in our lives. It makes people wonder when they see it. Now, I want you to think for just a minute. If you've walked with Jesus for a long time, Have you ever heard somebody ask you the question, why do you do that in relation to how you minister to people? Has somebody ever asked you, why are you so sweet and kind all the time? Why do you feed the homeless on the holidays? Why do you go to the prison to minister to people? Why did you give that guy on the corner ten bucks? You know he's just going to go do whatever. Why? Why? Because that's Jesus shining through. His glory can't be hidden. Now here's the deal. If it's been a while since somebody's asked you why, perhaps Jesus ain't shining through as brightly as He ought to be. Now, this is the start of a new beginning in the life of a Christian. This is the start. Jesus' is glory, that's the start. Now let's keep going. At the, the next thing that Jesus tells Philip and Andrew. Context. Andrew, at the very least, Peter's brother, is a fisherman. Okay? So what does he do for a living? Catches fish. Well, he tries to catch fish. Okay? Because if it was successful all the time, that it would be called catching, not fishing. Just saying. Philip is also from Galilee, which is a fishing area, not exactly prime farmland. Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Thank you, Jesus, for two non-answers. We said we've got some Greeks that want to come see you. And now you've told us that the time has come for your glory to come out, and now you're talking about planting wheat. Can we bring these Greeks to you or not? Of course, as enlightened 21st century Christians, on this side of the New Testament, we can easily understand what Jesus means, right? It's a it's a piece of cake. We can we can look down our noses at those disciples who didn't get it, because it's just clear as mud for us if you look at it in context. What was the process by which Jesus regained his glory? He died and was buried. He fell into the earth and died, just like a grain of wheat. Hmm. And he bore much fruit. So here's point number two. For those of you keeping notes, point number two. Not only should our lives be permeated by the glory of Jesus when we are saved, but that new beginning in the Christian life requires our kernel of wheat to fall to the ground dead too in order for us to be fruitful. Now, uh, how many of y'all grow wheat? not a real good place to grow wheat. The ground's too sandy and there's way too much water. So let me put it this way. What is the primary purpose of your salvation? Why are we saved? Okay? If your first answer has something to do with either being eternally present in heaven with God or being rescued from an eternity in hell, I challenge you to study harder on your discipleship. Because that ain't why we're saved. Those are what we call secondary effects. The primary reason we're saved is to glorify God. Okay? To bring Him glory. Well, we don't bring Him glory by just sitting around doing nothing. Bringing Him glory implies that there's work involved, doesn't it? Go like this. Okay? Look, if you've ever raised children and you've ever asked them to bring you something, you know how much work is involved in that bringing process. Hey, can you bring me a glass of water? Oh, I guess, right? We're supposed to bring God glory. There's work involved. And we're also supposed to do work. We're supposed to be involved in serving other people, in loving other people, in changing people's lives. We are saved for the purpose of being fruitful in the kingdom. Now where's the kingdom when is the kingdom Is is the heavenly kingdom a future thing The answer is yes Is the heavenly kingdom a present thing The answer is yes Remember John's message when John came preaching out of the wilderness dressed in his his cool camel hair coat right with beard and bug parts sticking out of his beard uh, honey and bug parts sticking out of his beard right You remember his message repent for the kingdom of God is where at hand it's right here you can touch it. we live in the kingdom. we're supposed to work like we're in the kingdom okay Ephesians chapter 2 Paul says that we're saved by faith through uh, by grace through faith right? And that's not our own. We can't boast about it. We can't brag. The only thing I contribute to my salvation is the need for salvation. But then in verse 10, He tells us that we are saved so that we can walk in the good works that Christ prepared beforehand for us to do. God had a plan for us before He ever sent Jesus down here. We are the means of sharing the Gospel with people. We are the means of growing disciples in the church. God could have designed it so that every one of us at at infancy was born with the kernel of the gospel in our brains and we just, at one point, snap and we accept it, just like when we switch from drinking milk to eating solid food. He could have done it that way, but he didn't. He could have designed it so that on every Thursday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the clouds in the sky will spell out the message of the gospel in the native language. He could have done that. He didn't. Instead, he designed it so that we get to take part in the process. But you know what that means? That means we have to take part in the process. We've got to be involved. Jesus told the disciples they would be his witnesses. You remember reading that? Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You'll be my witnesses where? Jerusalem. Okay, hang on a second. Do we live in Jerusalem? No. So does this apply to us? Yes. Where's our Jerusalem? Right here where you live. Okay, if you live in Gulfport, it's over there. If you're in Ocean Springs, it's over there. Wool Market, that's part of Biloxi, so that's close enough. Okay? Judea. Harrison County. Samaria. Dan, Cleve. Moss Point, Gaucher. Y'all are chuckling. How about down on the point in East Biloxi? You know, the other side of the base where most of us don't go? Right? Samaria are those places where we don't like to go because we don't care for the environment there. We don't necessarily care for the people that are there. Remember how badly the Jews hated the Samaritans? They would travel days out of their way to avoid going through Samaria. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in your hometown, in your local region, even to the people that you hate. And then, just in case you thought that gave you a loophole, the uttermost parts of the earth. So who are we supposed to be witnesses to? The answer is yes. Okay. So if you walk up to a person and you do that thing that I did with you this morning and you go, okay, stick out your left hand, take two fingers, put them over here, do you have a pulse? Yes. Then I'm supposed to be a witness to you. Kind of changes perspective, doesn't it? In the upper room, Jesus says, abide in me and let my commands abide in you so that you will bear much fruit. What do you say about the wheat? Then, unless it dies and falls into the ground, it will be alone. But if it does die, then it will bear much fruit. Hmm. Jesus' will for our lives is to be fruitful. Now there are times... That I'm blown away by the insight that Jesus showed. I shouldn't be. I mean, I, I accept the fact that He is the pre-existent Second Person of the Trinity. He is God. He's all-knowing, but there are times that I'm really just blown away by His insight. He knew His audience, not just the audience two thousand years ago, but the audience here today. He knew people. If we had the opportunity to find a loophole. In one of Jesus' commands, we're going to look for it. That's why that uttermost parts of the earth. I want you to be my witnesses wherever you go. Period. Right? If we have an opportunity to find a loophole that will give us an out from doing the hard things that a disciple has to do, we will jump on that like a duck on a bug. We will be all over it. Give me an opportunity to be able to say, well, Jesus, you didn't cover this, so I'm exempt. So to close that out, Jesus makes my third point for me. Look at verses 25 and 26. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Whoever loves his life. Now, it's one of those few places in John's Gospel where that word love is not the unconditional kind. That word love is phileo. The the emotional love, the feeling of love, the like, the fondness. Whoever holds on to that fondness for their life here, whoever likes their life, whoever is content with their life here, Jesus says we'll lose it. But whoever hates despises their life here will have life eternal. This is this is the the, the fruition of that new beginning. This is this is the sprouting of that kernel of wheat this is where Jesus' glory shows. What is your attachment to this life? Now before anybody freaks out, I am not advocating or encouraging anybody to contemplate suicide or anything foolish. That's no. I'm not Jim Jones. I don't have Kool-Aid in the foyer for him. Okay? I'm talking about how we feel about our life here. Are you satisfied with your life here? Not financially, not socially, not not with your work situation and that kind of stuff, but do you feel like this life is enough? It's not for me. I have a lot of really nice things. I have a great family. I have extended family. I have double extended family. I have friends. I have a decent job. I have a nice car. I have a nice house. I have, I have lots of things in this life that I'm okay with. But is this life enough for me? No. No. Cause you know, I woke up this morning and the very first thing that greeted me was anxiety. Not nervousness, okay? Clinical anxiety. You know, the kind that people seek treatment for. Yeah. Anxiety. The second thing that greeted me was pain. (laughs) I moved a little bit of furniture yesterday and things hurt. The third thing that greeted me was physiology. Thank you, aging process. But that's not why I'm discontent with this life. I'm discontent with this life because every time I open this computer or the one I have on my desk at work or if I, if I open my smartphone up and I look at the news or I look at Facebook or whatever, wherever, what is what am I confronted with? I'm confronted with pain. I'm confronted with hatred. I'm confronted with conflict. I'm confronted with greed. Basically, everything that God says He detests, boom. Right in the face. I'm not content with this world. I like my life, but not that much. This is how Jesus considers this. How serious it is to him. If anyone serves me, he must do what? Follow me. Right? Verse 26. There you go. Where is Jesus about to go? He's about to die. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. We must go where Jesus is. You remember, Jesus was talking to the, the the Pharisees, and he said that the physician doesn't go to the healthy people. Right? How about this? As as a as a consumer, have any of you ever had to call tech support, Cable One, AT and T, Verizon? Any any of those? You ever have to contact one of them? Have you ever just called up AT&T and said, hey, I just wanted to let you know everything's going great? No, we don't do that. We seek a doctor when we're sick. I I do not walk into Keesler Medical Center just to go to my primary care doctor and say, hey, I just want to let you know, doing good. No! Jesus said He didn't come for the righteous. He came for those who were lost. He came for those who were broken and hurting. I know some of you came to faith at a very young age. Some of you came to faith at an older age. One thing that's in common between all of us is there came a point where you realized how desperately you needed salvation to pull you out of that brokenness. You needed Jesus to fix what was broke. Now, in case I haven't stepped on your toes enough, we, as the church, have almost, especially in the United States, have almost entirely, 100%, ignored verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. We don't do that. We don't follow Jesus. We give Him worship that we're comfortable with. Worship that we're comfortable with. Now what do I mean by worship that we're comfortable with? All right, Where do we go to worship? Right here. In a nice warm building with good lights, good sound, people that we're comfortable with, and beautiful carpets. Comfy seats. Right? We're in America. Worship is supposed to be comfortable. Right? Think about this for a second. Worship means we are entering God's presence to show Him how worthy He is, right? Look at the biblical example of everybody who encounters God's presence. What is the first thing that God has to tell them? Or the angel? Or Jesus? Or whoever it is, fear not. When was the last time you walked through those doors in fear? I'm going to challenge you. I've been here on the coast for 14 years. For those 14 years, I have been in some way, shape, or form associated with this church. I have been in this sanctuary probably as much as most of you. Except Miss Jean, because she's been here forever. (laughs) <laughs> that's right there's only been one time I was afraid to walk through those doors and it was when I was a student at Keesler, and I'd never been here before and I wasn't afraid because I was going to encounter God in this place I was afraid because it was someplace new in that anxiety thing When was the last time we approached worshiping God in fear? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. We worship where we're comfortable. This is rhetorical. I do not want you to raise your hands. I do not want to cause anybody to to look down on anybody else. This is a... This is a question I'm going to pose to every person in here. And I want you to seriously, honestly, truthfully evaluate your answer to this question. Are you willing to go to the old golf course, you know, the abandoned one, back behind the Methodist church where the homeless camp is, just to go pray with people? Because you know that's what Jesus did, right? In Jesus's day, it was the leper colony. Jesus was the guy who went and touched the lepers. Would you be willing to go to the the rehab, the the methadone clinic, or whatever it is, the treatment center down here on Pass Road, just past Advance Auto Parts, the the new 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 Christ, new hope, whatever it is, treatment center? Would you be willing to go in there? just to sit in the waiting room and pray with the people who are trying to get off of whatever substance they're addicted to? That's what Jesus did. Would you really let go of that kernel of wheat that is your life that you hold on to So dearly and plant it in the ground where it could make fruit, where it could grow and bloom and blossom? Matthew 28, verse 18. I already mentioned that today, right? Go therefore and do what? Make disciples. I had somebody ask me here a couple of months ago, who are you being discipled by? Is there a person in your life, spiritually, that you look up to? If that's not a hard enough question, who are you discipling? Who are you providing mentorship to? That's a command. Go therefore and make disciples. The imperative word is make. Not go. Go. The sense of that Greek sentence is, as you go, since you are going, on your way to Walmart, make disciples. Since you're at school, make disciples. Since you're at the shipyard, since you're working on Kiesler, make disciples. So there's two questions for you. Who are you being discipled by and who are you discipling? If the answer to the first one is nobody, then your reservoir is dry. If you don't have somebody in your life challenge you to grow in Christ, you're not going to grow. I have learned this through trial and error with plants in my yard. Anybody grow roses other than Seth? If you want a rose bush to be bushy and grow lots and lots of flowers, what do you got to do, Seth? you got to prune it. And does the rosebush prune itself? No. Did you know there are plants that do that? I did not realize this. Oak trees, when a wind blows through and it blows the dead branches out of the oak tree, that's actually pruning. They're designed to do that. Who designed them? God did. Okay? We are more rosebush than we are oak tree. We need somebody else to constantly prune us. But then if the answer to question number two, who are you discipling? If the answer to that is nobody, I'm going to invite you to go back and listen to this message again. Is Jesus' glory shining out your life? Because if He can't be hidden, then you ought to be making an impact on somebody's life, Right? There's there's lots of metaphors I can use from Scripture. You know the the city on a hill, right? Shines like a beacon for everybody to see. Okay, we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. You don't put a light under a bushel. I don't put anything under a bushel because I don't have bushels laying around the house. I don't know if any of you have noticed. Now I'm going to get a little nostalgic. I might even get a little misty on this one. In 2001, November, I visited this church for the first time. This set of seats was full. This set of seats was full. This set of seats was was full. Nobody ever sits over here. <laughs> Even back then. Yeah, yeah, the youth did. In two thousand four, I moved down here and I made the Gulf Coast my home. But for fourteen years, I've seen this room packed. Packed. I've seen us have to move the piano and the keyboard out to the front of the platform because the choir loft ain't big enough. And i got to tell you, it has nothing to do with the person standing right here. It has everything to do with the people sitting in the seats. And it's not just here. Part of the reason I'm able to be here today is because the entity known as Olivet Baptist Church has less than 60 days left before that congregation closes down. Because the church quit following Jesus. Way before I got there. That was a dead congregation when I moved up there. They just didn't know it yet. The church in the United States is in peril, across the board, across denomination. Believe it or not, even the Roman Catholic Church is in decline. Why? Because we don't follow Jesus. We look for easy ways to grow our numbers. We look for events. We look for flashy. We look for stuff to make people come. We can't do that. Trust me. I am working with the association to close a church. Wrap your heads around that for a minute. You know why? Why? Because all of the stuff that we tried to do didn't work. We tried vacation Bible school. Didn't work. We tried a bus ministry. Doesn't work. We tried block parties. Didn't work. We tried handing out free candy along the road in front of the church at Halloween. Didn't work. Summer picnics in the front yard. Free food and games didn't work. Mailouts didn't work. Door hanging questionnaires for the neighborhood didn't work. You know why? Because the people didn't work. For 40 years, that church relied on the pastor and the senior deacon to grow the church two people. Y'all heard of the 80/20 rule? 20% of the 20% of the people do 80% of the work. If there is one place in this world that should not be that way, it's the church. We got to quit looking for easy. Jesus gave us the easiest way to grow numbers in the church. He did. I promise. You want to know how to find that easy way? Ready? Take your left hand. Stick it out in front of you. Take these two fingers. Check. See if you've got a pulse. If you claim to love Jesus, follow Him. Do what He's called us to do. The training's available. I don't know how. I don't know what to say. I don't want... Does anybody not have a Bible? Does anybody not have two Bibles? If you're like most of us, and Dave and I are exempt from this list, both of us have a library. All right? If you have a smartphone, you have a collection of Bibles available to you at any point in time. If you have an internet connection, Biblegateway.com, Crosswalk.com blueletterbible.com. If you need to know how to make disciples, that's what this place is for. If you need to know how to be a witness, that's what this place is for. But if you ain't going to do it, no amount of programs, no amount of music, no amount of flashing lights or loud podium kicking preachers is going to change anything in this building. I am so glad Logan came in right there. Because that joy should be the joy that we have when we see that glory of Jesus in other people's lives.